I am John Wolfe. Welcome to Religion in History, Conflict, Conversion and Coexistence. We will be exploring a long span of religious history through a focus on particular periods and case studies. I shall briefly be discussing the general approach adopted, which runs through all the diverse contexts that we shall be looking at. Religious identities and traditions are deeply rooted in particular events and readings of history. For example, there is the Jewish sense of God's past dealings with his chosen people. The Christian conviction of a pivotal significance of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and the Muslim submission to the teachings and example of Muhammad. We are not seeking either to challenge or to confirm such readings of history as it were through the eyes of faith, although we shall certainly be acknowledging their powerful influence in shaping the beliefs of many of the people we are studying. Our intention, rather, is to stand back from religiously committed interpretations of history and to seek to understand and interpret the role of religion in the past in as neutral and objective a manner as possible. But of course, in relation to religion, as in other aspects of history, you will encounter different perspectives and assumptions. Indeed, if we all achieved perfect detachment, consistency and objectivity, our writing would probably be very boring. There are seldom clear-cut right answers to complex historical questions, and you should be ready to make your own mind up about the material presented to you. I discussed the academic study of the history of religion with Professor David Chidester of the University of Cape Town. I was intrigued by, and as a historian of religions, I was interested in this task of writing about Christianity from the perspective of the historian of religions, using uh, categories that could be used in principle to study any religion, and yet focusing in some depth and detail on Christianity as both a global religion with... Uh, international, even universal scope, but always as an intimately local religion. And so what I wanted to do was to get into place, to get into very specific locations of Christianity and see what we could discover. Yes, it's quite an exciting approach. But sometimes when we get into uh, particular locations, surely what we see is not so much the dominance of Christianity as very wide patterns of religious coexistence. I mean, whether, for example, it's the later Roman Empire or many present-day Western societies. Yeah, so this was, um, in a way, to open up the study of Christianity so that it wasn't exclusively owned and operated by particular Christian interests. And so to open up a history of Christianity that was inter-religious, that those who identify themselves as Christians have always been in relation to so-called others. So on the one hand, I wanted to bring into the story the perspectives on Christians from Muslim perspectives, Jewish perspectives, Hindu perspectives, Buddhist perspectives. That's an important part of the story. But then we also tend to assume that religions are focal points of conflict and that people cannot coexist with different religious identities. So I worked very hard to find places, as you say, in the later Roman Empire, Mamre, uh, for example, where in the 4th century... Uh, it was a sacred site for pagans, Jews, Christians, in a way a kind of coexistence uh, in that space. Or in 17th century India, where Christians, Muslims, and Hindus could share a particular space. Now, I have to admit, those instances of uh, peaceful coexistence were harder to find than, than I uh, had hoped. 
But there is that um, commitment throughout the book to interreligious, interrelational history of Christianity. What would you say were the dominant themes in the history of Christianity? Was there perhaps anything that surprised you during the course of writing the book, as opposed to the assumptions you started out yeah. when you embarked mm-hmm. on it? Mm-hmm. I, I knew where I wanted to begin with, uh, you know, so these ancient origins and making them more complex and uh, rich. So there was more material to think about the beginnings. Then I knew where I wanted to end with this, these problems of globalization in a world of transnational relations, consumerism, and so on. So I wrote the first section first. I wrote the third section second. Now, connecting them, that was the challenge. And I suppose over 20 years living in Southern Africa, I developed this Southern African perspective on religion where Europe is a problem. The notion that Christianity was a European invention, that it was a European uh, commodity, that it was this European thing that came to Africa. And so part of it was the challenge of reversing that. And I suppose what I was most surprised by was in the middle section, getting between my ancient origins to my global transformations of Christianity. I came to love dwelling in this detail of, of those middle chapters, getting from this, this fragmentation of uh, forms of Christianity developing in Europe to the very notion of a Europe. On America... As I understand it, you see a central theme in American religious history as the sense of Americans searching for Zion, the Puritans crossing the Atlantic in search of Zion, then the Mormons in the mid-19th century finding their way into the West again searching uh, for Zion. That's one uh, narrative of American Christianity and quite a powerful one, but I wonder what other ways you might see of looking at it. I was uh, raising the question of center. The conventional narrative about uh, American religion is pluralism, diversity, within a constitutional framework that prohibits the establishment of any single religion and at the same time guarantees the free exercise of all religions. So this would be another way of telling the story of pluralism, diversity, a million flowers blooming. But at the same time, there is this centralizing impulse And so in that chapter, I just wanted to set up that uh, dynamic of a centralizing impulse. It's sometimes called civil religion or religious nationalism. So it's uh, invested in the nation or in the state or in this collective identity as Americans. And yet it has this centralizing force. Yes, there are so many intriguing paradoxes and tensions in American Mm. religious history, aren't there? Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, to relate it to tension between coexistence and conflict. Where do you stand on uh, this kind of dynamic? I mean, would you emphasize coexistence or conflict, or do you see them as different sides of the same coin, perhaps? Well, this goes to the heart of the problem in which uh, religion, as I understand it, is, well, you know, it might refer to the more than human, but it's at least a human thing, so something human beings do. And one feature of religion is to relate to transcendence, what rises above and goes beyond ordinary human life. So you have this highest aspiration of the human spirit, but the other side of that coin is always dehumanization, that some entities are treated as less than human. Now, they might be animals, they might be vegetables, they might be minerals, but they might be folks like us with opposable thumbs, bipedal locomotion, and slightly increased frontal lobe of the brain that under various signs of uh, religious difference are treated as less than human. 
So this notion of uh, religion being in touch with the superhuman, the more than human, the transcendent, is the other side of the same coin of this impetus of, uh, to classify some persons as less than human and outside of the realm of morally protected entities. So this is always a, a problematic dynamic in religion. Likewise, religion is about the sacred, sacred terms and conditions that, uh, as Durkheim said, uh, weave people together into a moral community. But the very terms that include also exclude. And so it's, again, as you say, the same side of the, of the coin, or the other side of the coin. So I think this is just sort of a general sweeping observation about the dynamics of religion. It's part of what I was trying to track in the book, was that uh, inherent ambiguity. It's good news and bad news. And so this also applies to America. I mean, it's religious life is diverse and plural and within a constitutional framework that prevents establishment and guarantees exercise. Now, a critical historian could look at the formation of that constitutional arrangement and see it as a compromise in which no single Christian grouping was able to establish dominance. And so to guarantee the existence of any one, they had to guarantee the existence of all. But then you always want to see where is the limit, where is the boundary, how far does that toleration extend? And at many points in, in the book, I, I tried to look for that, you know, where, where are the boundaries which are flashpoints of conflict? How do you account for the ongoing success, at least relatively speaking, of Christianity in America? Because it strikes me there are two periods when... Uh, Christianity in America sort of confounds what might be the predictions. In the period post-independence in the late 18th century, when Enlightenment influence is strong for people like Jefferson, who would certainly seem to be leading the new nation away from a, at least, traditional Christianity, then we have a period of, in fact, great evangelical uh, revival and building of evangelical churches. And in much more recent years, a period when... Uh, Europe seemingly has become much more secular mm. when uh, indicators of Christian profession and practice mm. remain much higher in the United States. Mm. Mm. I wonder what your observations and explanations for uh, that phenomenon might be. Well, I have no explanation, but I mean, as you point to a history of revitalization, in conventional history of Christianity in America, these are great awakenings. And... Uh, so there is this history of revitalization, re-energizing, and then often coming from the periphery. I mean, you have, like, again, look at the center and the periphery, where, um, you know, these rather unconventional, uh, maybe wild and wacky things, unusual uh, forms of religious creativity that uh, have remarkably succeeded in re-energizing Christian commitment and affiliation in America. I have no explanation for it. But it is just an astounding phenomenon that uh, American varieties of Christianity have been able to uh, renew themselves or transform themselves in these different uh, historical periods. It's, uh, it is amazing. I also stand back in awe of it, just wondering how, do, how does that happen? Shall we move, as you did in fact in your own career, from America to Africa? Hmm. And can I begin by asking you, why do you think that the initial European missionary effort towards Africa was relatively unsuccessful? Well, I've read, uh, you know, uh, missionary correspondences from uh, southern Africa, like in what's now KwaZulu-Natal, was one of the most missionized regions of the world. 
complaining about their lack of success in uh, gaining converts. And oh, one missionary complains, you know, we can't convert anybody. They're too wealthy. They're too prosperous. They are too, uh, too happy. By the mid-19th century in Southern Africa, you had missionary correspondents saying, um, the only way we're going to gain converts is to break their political independence, to destroy their economic subsistence, to incorporate people as wage labor. So it was a whole, you know, it was this uh, concerted effort to destroy local forms of life. You found Christian missions, you know, you think um, in the earlier historiography of the Christian mission being transplanted from Europe, well, locally in Southern Africa, Africans experienced Christianity as a religion that defined itself in opposition to indigenous religion. So what Christianity was, it was not ancestors, it was not sacrifice, it was not rainmaking, it was not witch detection, and so on. So it defined itself in opposition to local religious practices. And then if you had to give some positive content to it, it was certain styles of European clothing, it was square houses rather than round houses, it was the plow, it was the wagon, it was firearms. You know, you, we don't usually think of these as religious symbols, but within the Christian mission, these were highly charged Christian symbols and the very terms and conditions of conversion. So, you know, throughout um, the 19th century, throughout much of, much of Africa, Christianity was experienced as an opposition, not just in uh, religious terms, as if religion could be separated from the rest of life, but in opposition of a whole range of social practices, of gender relations, of economic activity, and political independence. So why then the turnabout that comes from the very late 19th century onwards, and particularly in the 20th century? Why are such large numbers of Africans becoming Christians at this later period? No, it's extraordinary. You go from, say, around 1900, in what's now South Africa, you're looking at, uh, in the African indigenous population, maybe 10% Christian. 50 years later, 50% Christian. A remarkable religious transformation. Now, this coincided with the rise of independent churches, indigenous churches, African-initiated churches. Getting back to one of the themes of the book is that Christianity is not just meaningful because people interpret its religious resources in different ways. It's also powerful because people appropriate, they claim, they own these things. So you had a remarkable rise of independent, uh, indigenous, African-initiated churches throughout Africa, which mobilized people, and it's often been ar argued uh, in which folks didn't convert to Christianity, but Christianity was converted to African religious interests of building up a home as a sacred place, of building a community as a, a sacred network of inclusion. But now people also converted to the so-called mission churches, of uh, various uh, European denominations. And as recent research has shown, this was also an African initiative, that no small group of European foreign alien missionaries could possibly have managed this process, that it was really the initiative of African leadership that took roles in creating Christian communities. So I think it's these two things, the, the rise of independent churches and then the rise of African Christian leadership within the European mission churches. Now, this was concomitant with the destruction of political independence, of economic subsistence, of social forms of life. So it was, it was in the context of tremendous 
material disruption. So to that extent, the political expansion of European powers in late 19th century Africa does provide some of the preconditions. Oh, yeah. No, I would think definitely. Uh, part of what's interested me is I wrote a book on uh, comparative religion in southern Africa where I was intrigued by all these Christian missionaries that would come in and say, Africans have no religion. Now, they weren't just saying that they uh, were not familiar with Christianity. They said they had no religion whatsoever. And, and at the beginning of the 19th century, every Christian missionary said these folks have no religion. By the mid-19th century, as the Christian mission was backed up by military force and by the economic penetration of uh, wage labor and so on, when a community's political independence was broken, when its economic stability was disrupted, well, then suddenly these missionaries started recognizing these folks had a religion. Uh, it was a strange historical phenomenon. Of course, that religion had to be destroyed and entirely replaced by Christianity. Now, what I try to suggest in the book is that destruction and replacement did not happen. What happened was forms of African indigenous religious life were mobilized to claim the, uh, Christianity as African. So would you really say it's Christianity that is converted to Africa almost more than Africans being converted to Christianity. That's what I would like to say. And we move on to uh, India, where you've been formulating a little bit of the same kind of argument, as I understand mm, it, of uh, right, yeah. the interchange between Hinduism as the traditionally dominant religion in, in the subcontinent. Uh, mm -hmm. with uh, Christians, and very interestingly mm -hmm. sort of tracing the Christian presence back into earlier history, I think sort of reminding mm -hmm. us that it wasn't just an arrival with 18th and uh, 19th mm -hmm. century missionaries. Mm -hmm. I think, though, specialists on Hinduism might have some trouble with the way that you portray figures like Ramon Roy and Vivekananda mm -hmm. as sort of somehow claiming Christ as a part of Hinduism. Would it be fair to say that, in fact, they'd, while respecting uh, Jesus as a moral teacher, in the case of Vivekananda, as an example of sort of supreme renunciation, still would have fallen quite a long way short of the theological claims that Christians themselves traditionally make for Jesus Christ? Mm. Absolutely. And in that chapter, and as in other chapters, since I'm not a theologian, I don't want to privilege any particular Christian theological claim on Christ. And what I love about that chapter, if you read it backwards, if you start at the end, you will find an anecdote that I think is the only thing in the book that I don't provide a reference for. And it's about research that was done in a local community in which uh, people who identify themselves as Hindu were asked, who is your deity, your chosen deity, your Ishtadevata, the focus of your religious devotion? And, and out of this community, 15% identified Jesus Christ as their focus of religious devotion. But 0% said they were Christians. But it impressed me, if then you go backwards through there, you'll read uh, Gandhi, for example. He takes Christ on, takes in um, Christ, but not Christianity. And I think you find a similar thing when I'm writing about the 19th century Hindu reformers, if you want to use that word, what I was really interested in was writing about Hinduism as a whole different structure. So you find with, again, reading backwards, Vivekananda, Jnana Yoga, a way of knowledge, of insight. Well, Christ features in there, as you say, as a 
enlightened being, although he does not take on Christian theological propositions about Jesus. Working back with the middle section, Sen, you find bhakti yoga, the devotional yoga in which Christ appears without Christian theological suppositions. And then Ram Mohan Roy, karma yoga, this emphasis on works and, and moral dimensions. Christ is a moral teacher. So taking Christ on, but not Christianity. So I think you're absolutely right. My claim in this chapter is certainly not that these Hindu reformers were Christian theologians or were adopting Christian theological propositions or premises or assumptions. And yet, as part of this work of, of appropriating and owning and claiming, you find a similar situation as in Africa in which Hindu reformers converted Christ to Hinduism rather than converting to Christianity. But it is a problem, in, you know, writing a history of Christianity, who's a Christian? You know, it really is a difficult problem. Who's in and who's out? Clearly the St. Thomas Christians or the Thomas Christians would identify themselves as Christians, whereas um, the figures we've just been talking about would not. Thank you. What about Protestant Hinduism, which I mean, some might find a sort of, again, a slightly problematic category because it... Mm. Uh, brings a concept from one tradition, Christianity, mm, mm. Uh, and Protestantism, and applies it to another, Hinduism. I find it a stimulating concept, nevertheless, that, mm, uh, as you're saying, mm, purifying mm. tradition, recovering and interpreting its primary sacred mm, texts, mm. which is very much a sort of analogy with what the Christian Protestant reformers were doing in 16th century Europe. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Nevertheless, aren't there ways we mm. could also see Vivekananda and others as advocates of a Catholic Hinduism uh, 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 in terms uh, of trying to universalize uh, right, the right. Uh, tradition, mm. bring it into a more worldwide than local dimension. Yeah, so more um, inclusive, uh, universalizing. But uh, this notion of Protestant Hinduism or Protestant Buddhism, I believe we have Max Weber to thank and to blame for this, mm. because we are looking at, you know, however it takes different religious form, it is this Weberian notion of modernization and rationalization in which the Protestant ethic of self-discipline in productive labor that's adapted to these different modern conditions combined with a self-denial and, you know, this, this whole dynamic of the Protestant ethic. Well, is this what's going on in 19th century Hindu reformers? Oh, maybe Ram Mohan Roy a bit, but maybe not... Some of the others, you know, it's, it's, uh, it becomes really a point of uh, finer historical debate and, uh, and contestation. I remember some years ago, we were talking earlier about uh, American Christianity. There was the Institute for Christian Economics that worked up this scheme that, you know, only the Protestant ethic is the formula for economic success. And somebody would say to them, you know, at that time, Japanese were doing pretty well. What about Japan? They're not Protestant Christians. Ah, they'd say, they act like Protestant Christians. <laughs> you know, so, that, whereas, uh, you know, all Africa's messed up because they are pagans, this institute would say. And he said, well, no, actually, quite a lot of them are Protestant Christians. Oh, well, they act like pagans. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. that's a humorous example of, of, of the historical problem that we're looking at in all forms of modern religion. It's just such a curious thing that just at the time when this very notion of religion is arising as a separate, differentiated, specialized social institution, you know, it seems, it seems like uh, it's going out of style just when we get the word. It's very, very strange. 
And I think one of the intriguing things that is going on in 19th century India is how the Hindu reformers are trying to find their way towards more modern forms of religion and culture, which are not mm. simply the mm. appropriation of Western Christianity and uh, uh, so-called Western yeah. civilization. Yeah. Well, is that, that modern dilemma where religion becomes increasingly privatized, so it's transportable through ethical life, through devotion, through meditation practices, you can do anywhere and everywhere, just at a time when it's in this uncomfortable relationship with nationalism, you know, which is carving out a territory. Maybe it's a symbiosis of increasingly privatized religion and then a religious character given to the nation um, that's also being worked out here. In the final part of our conversation, David Chichester and I discussed some of the general issues raised by perceived links between religion and violence, and also the question of authenticity in religious traditions. But there's a dynamic also, isn't there, where it is seldom the leaders of religion who are directly responsible for the violence, but they may well be part of the preconditions that give rise to it. I mean, one uh, might cite the Holocaust as an example, where uh, it is the Nazis who are responsible for the death camps, but there is a whole much wider story to be told about uh, traditions of Christian anti-Semitism in 19th-20th century Germany. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is what I also try to develop in that chapter in the book on the Holocaust, that uh, there were, at the very least, nurturing and supporting conditions that were part of a long history of Christian anti-Judaism. And uh, after the Holocaust, this was certainly a focus of reflection and, and self-critique amongst Christian theologians. So this is not a, a new thing that I'm, I'm introducing. But I think uh, you're absolutely right that we cannot just look at the statements of religious leaders. We cannot just look at the canonical texts. We can't just look at uh, the ethical pronouncements but this deeper structural history, preparing the groundwork, uh, creating a climate, enabling, I mean, these were all part of the dynamics of, uh, always part of the dynamics of violence. Yes, and another example of this close to home for us in Britain would be that of Northern Ireland, mm. where church leaders on both sides have seldom specifically advocated violence, but the whole tradition, particularly of anti-Catholicism in Northern Ireland, mm. has produced at least some of the preconditions, I think, for Protestant mm. paramilitary violence. Mm. Yeah. And in all these uh, situations, you wonder, what breaks the cycle of violence? What breaks the cycle of revenge and uh, retribution and so on? It's often an extraordinary almost religious breakthrough whenever that happens. Now, we're just now in South Africa celebrating 10 years of freedom and democracy. Yesterday, we just celebrated the, um, 10 years ago, the inauguration of our first democratic, uh, democratically elected president, Nelson Mandela. And it's uh, extraordinary. You've heard the religious language that's being used to describe what was an intensely difficult, conflictual and negotiated settlement. Well, it's called a miracle. You know, this was a miracle that somehow the cycle of revenge and... Uh, retribution was broken. Can I also, in conclusion, raise the question of the sort of authenticity of the Christian tradition, which I understand you've also mm -hmm. been uh, writing about issues of authenticity in religion recently. And this has come up in relation to quite a bit of discussion of the role of Islam in the modern world. Mm -hmm. The quest of 
some Islamists and others to redefine what they see as an authentic Islam. But the tendency of debates around the possible implication of Islam in violence then suggesting, well, it isn't the real Muslims who are doing this. Where do you stand on these kind of debates uh, in relation to Christianity? Because some of the transformations you write about in the book might be seen by some as compromising the historic authenticity of the Christian tradition. Some of the possible unacceptable face of Christianity we've been talking about in terms of, mm. of violence might be seen by some as mm. not real Christianity, which is uh-huh. about pacifism and mm. other things according mm. to them. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible as a scholar and as a historian of religion, rather than as somebody holding to a particular theological faith position of what Christianity mm. is, mm. to uncover an authentic Christianity in all that discussion? Mm. You point to an important strategy for claiming authenticity, and that is to distinguish between the ideal and the real. So it's an important strategy that many people use. There's an ideal, perfect Christianity, which we must distinguish from its distortions in the real world. I'm sorry to reminisce about 10 years ago in South Africa, but a little bit before that, when the African National Congress was unbanned, the South African Communist Party was unbanned, one of the leaders of the South African Communist Party came on television, and he was going to debate with one of our Protestant Christian religious leaders. And um, the Protestant uh, Christian religious leader, for some reason, decided to apologize for the Crusades. And um, the South African Communist Party leader, he apologized for Stalin. So there were apologies all around. And then uh, the Christian guy says, uh, well, you know... uh, Christianity is really good, it's it's just never been tried. And the communist guy says, you know, communism's really good, it's just never been tried. So they they both agreed on using that same strategy of identifying their authenticity, distinction between the ideal and the real. Now, I'm not interested in passing judgment on that, I'm just interested in identifying that as one strategy that people use to establish authenticity. But there are many other kinds of strategies for establishing authenticity, claims on the ownership of authentic text, claims on, as I develop in the middle part of the book, who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak. Well, you know, for some of these, poverty was the warrant to be able to speak, to have no ownership of possessions during the Catholic Middle Ages was a a sign of authenticity. So without trying to resolve the question of authenticity, which I do not know how to resolve, I nevertheless think it's the most important question. You know, as as a historian, I can examine different characteristic strategies uh, for claiming authenticity, for producing uh, authenticity, for living authentically, and for dying for that authenticity, and then, of course, as you allude, killing to protect that authenticity. In my recent research, I've tried to push this absolutely to the limit by studying frauds and charlatans and fakes and, you know, even these invented religions on the Internet like the Church of the Prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S, the only authentic and honest religion in the world, they say, because they're only in it for the money. Well, you know, it pushes out. What, what do we use to establish authenticity? Uh, are there, there are historical claims on authentic origins. There are structural claims on the basic ingredients that go into authenticity. There's sincerity as a claim on authenticity. How do you measure sincerity? So there are a range of different strategies for producing authenticity, and what 
interests me as a historian is just to try to track those in very specific situations and to see how they play out. Well, thank you very much indeed. John, thanks very much. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.